G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story by this time, I was so ill that my mum actually raced me into the Alfred Hospital and she made an appointment through my doctor with a specialist and I collapsed on the steps while she parked the car and they had to take me in with in a wheelchair. I saw a professor who did a quick series of tests and at that point I was diagnosed with acute heart and kidney failure and I was raced through the hospital corridors into the coronary care unit and I was only 25 years old. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Karen Redpath is the author of the book Out of the Darkness, about her story of coming out of the darkness of drug addiction. She says it all began in her teenage years when she started to experiment with drugs for a bit of fun. But that eventually led her down the road to addiction and to being in the hospital, where she was told she had less than two hours to live. Today, we'll hear how God completely turns her life around as Karen shares her story with us from her home in Melbourne. She's having a chat with Eric Scatterbo. Karen Redpath, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Lovely to be here. Glad to have you with us. And we want to know what led you down the path of darkness, but then also how God led you on the path to light. So we're going to hear all of that today. Let's find out how it all started. Tell us about your childhood. Okay, well, I had a a really great childhood. I had a loving family. I had two brothers. My parents ran a business in the city and worked pretty long hours, so they weren't home when I got home from school. But, um, you know, from the moment I first laid eyes on a horse or ponies, I fell in love with horses. And and my teenage years, my parents bought me a horse. My dad also bought us a small speedboat. Um, They weren't well. We weren't really wealthy. They worked hard for what Mm -hmm. they had. And I got into water skiing. I had lots of friends. I went to good schools. So I had a pretty good start to life, you know. Yeah. Usually when you think of somebody who gets into drug addiction, you think of trauma, abuse. There's some kind of pain that they're trying to self-medicate to kill the pain of their childhood. But obviously that wasn't the case for you. Well, absolutely. That's very, very real for many people, um, but not for everyone. There's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. the, the drugs are so common out place out there at the moment, like even more so than when I, when I was younger. And it's just so easy to come across them and fall down that path. And mm-hmm. like with me, it often just starts with a little bit of risk taking. You know, I, my parents actually changed my school um, when I was in, oh, I don't know, I was about 15 or 16. And, and you know, I had to fit in with a whole lot of new people. So I was quite shy and I just mm-hmm. wanted to fit in. And so I started like um, hanging around with others that were having a bit of fun with drinking alcohol. It was a bit underage, so it seemed a bit risky and a bit of fun and, um, you know, smoking cigarettes other people were doing it. I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want to stand out and be the uncool person. So I I joined in and it seemed like a bit of fun. You know, my family was fairly strict, um, not in a a heavy way, a loving way. And it was just a bit of rebellion, I guess. And one thing leads to another. So that's how it all began. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it started. Just a bit of fun with underage drinking. Then what happened? Yeah, if only people knew that, you know, everyone, you seem to think that you're the first person to do this, but you're not. (laughs) It's been around for years and the problems that go with it. Well, somewhere along the line at at 18, um, I met a couple of guys when I was away. Where was I? Lawn. (laughs) Mm. And they offered me a joint of marijuana. And once again, 
I just didn't want to seem uncool. Uh, I'd never even thought about drugs. We didn't have drug education at schools when I was young and I don't blame anyone for that, but it just wasn't considered necessary. And I said, yes. And that's where that started. I began to smoke a little bit more marijuana. And at the age of 19, I actually moved out of home and I went to live down um, in a really pretty town on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And I moved into a rental property with uh, one of the local girls who was really nice, but also really into partying in our house became a bit of a party house and mm. you know it just gradually there is definitely a slippery slope where you can go from not everyone falls down this path but it's very very common where you go mm. from a bit of alcohol cigarettes marijuana and and once you start smoking marijuana from my point of view you know all of this is actually gateway into other drugs and can be because you know from the moment you know i see it that you've crossed the line you've mm -hmm. dropped your guard yeah and you've started to take mind-altering substances you're hanging around people using drugs so it's very easy so there's other drugs of course very easy to say yes to other drugs and you know people around me were using um, hallucinogenic type drugs really powerful mind-altering substances and once again, you know, just wanting to fit in and not and, and just experience something new, I tried that as well. And, you know, it all seems like a lot of fun. And at the start, it, you know, I'd be lying to say that there wasn't a bit of fun, but that's that's the lure. And mm, yeah. so often it turns into darkness, which is what happened to me. Even within taking marijuana and using um, hallucinogenic drugs, they they can be they can cause paranoia. Yeah, um, they yeah. can cause some really powerful, freaky situations, and 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 people really can freak out. And you know, I've got some stories of my own in my books of situations that were really frightening. But it wasn't enough to stop me, you know. Um, yeah, so that's the way it went. Now, I was never going to use what I considered to be hard drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and don't get me wrong, marijuana is not a soft drug. We, we well and truly know that now. But one day a friend came to visit and told me they'd been using heroin. Now, I was really shocked at first, but mm -hmm. also curious because this person I knew had a full-time job and, and looked pretty healthy. So not your stereotypical hard drug user. No, no. So I started to think, oh, perhaps it's not as bad as what everyone says, you know. Mm. I, I just wouldn't mind trying it, you know. Besides, then I can say, yeah, I've done heroin, you know. How cool would that sound? That was your thinking at the time. It's an immature brain, you know. The brain's mm. not, yeah. the human brain doesn't fully mature till about the mid to late 20s, so. And, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I can say that too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we lined up a, a, um, a day and I had the, my first taste of heroin. And mm. as I said, I was only ever going to try this once, but this is a very addictive drug. Mm -hmm. And before long I was using, it was creeping more into my life. Yeah, so this is the way I slipped down that slippery path. I was still working full time. Um, you know, I, I had it under control. Nothing would go wrong with me. I knew what I was doing. You thought you had it all under control, I guess we could that's say. That's right. That's yeah. That's how I was thinking, and that's yeah. what so many people think. But mm -hmm. it wasn't; it yeah. was a lie. It wasn't true. Yeah. As long as I'm working, I have a job. I have income. I'm functional. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Just a little fun on the weekends, I guess, might be the thinking. That's sort of what it seemed like. But before long, it becomes during the week as well. And in fact, mm. we even had lunch breaks where we smoked marijuana, and you know, like. I was actually working down the country for a while. I worked um, in the pub and then I worked um, on a farm down there. Like I'd been in office work before this, but um, there wasn't any of that sort of work available down there. Yeah, so at, at 19, I actually went on a, um, 
uh, a big adventure on a trip to Nepal, Kathmandu in Nepal. And oh, wow. by this time, I was really starting to um, use lots of drugs, lots of marijuana, just mainly marijuana and hash and all of the um, different uh, forms of, of cannabis. And when was this about? Like the 70s? Uh, yeah, 1976, a long time ago we're talking about. And mm-hmm. I, I was so naive and I went with a, with a girlfriend of mine and when I was there, you know, we were taking such risks. Like I look back now and I cannot believe how reckless I was. Like mm. I just had no clue. I just thought, you know, this is fun, this is life. And, you know, we were smoking in, in smoking dens where uh, you walk out and you're just so out of it, you, you're wandering around these streets in a terrible state. And some years later I discovered that there'd been a serial killer in um, around that area at the time that we were there who was killing tourists. Oh, wow. And apparently he he, he was so charismatic that, you know, if we'd met him, we would have been totally sucked in. So mm. it's just the risk that you take when you're in that in that area using drugs is mm-hmm. quite unbelievable sometimes, yeah. And as a matter of fact, the uh, risky behavior led to your illness. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what happened to me was that um, I actually contracted typhoid when I was over there. I'd had my typhoid shots, but I got another strain of it, Salmonella paratyphoid A, and it's from eating food that had been handled by a typhoid carrier. Now, I'm not trying to put down anyone in that country. It's a, you know, it's a much poorer country and mm-hmm. hygiene's not the same. But in that state of being you know, smoking, you get the munchies. It's just mm. very common with marijuana. And you tend to not think carefully about where you're eating or what you're eating or the, the hygiene side. And, you know, I'm not surprised that this happened. I was so sick. I started to have delirium attacks. And I had my first in the middle of the night one night when I, I got up to go to the bathroom and I sat down leaning on a palm tree just totally head spinning, not knowing where I was. Now, this wasn't drug-induced. This was the illness that I had and I, and I didn't know what it was. So... I decided that I had to head home and came home and I was home for six weeks and went into sort of remission. And in the meantime, um, I was riding a horse, rounding up some cattle and the horse uh, was scared by a motorbike and fell over and broke my leg in two places. Oh, wow. (laughs) And all of a sudden, yeah, and it was really bad. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, with my leg in plaster, I started having these delirium attacks again and the typhoid. uh, Sorry, and I was raced to hospital and I was diagnosed with this typhoid and spent almost 10 weeks in Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital in Melbourne, which which isn't there now. But, Mm. you know, and it all goes back really when I look at it to the risk-taking that I was doing uh-huh. And, and not thinking clearly and, and, and yeah, so th- there's a lot of things that come out of going down this path of being young and naive and taking risks, thinking you're just having a bit of fun. So, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one part of my story. When yeah. you're in another country where things are different, you should yeah. really have your wits about you, you know, because oh, you could possibly be robbed or you could possibly eat the wrong thing. But yep. you're saying when your focus is on getting high and, you know, all these kind of things, you don't have your wits about you. You're, you're the opposite. Right. Your guard is down. Uh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I can see that now. And young people don't think about that so yeah. often, which yeah. is why I try to <laughs> educate in this area. But, yeah, so um, then uh, after the next the next thing that happened to me was that I, I, I moved down to Flinders for a while after that trip, actually, and then... Mm-hmm lived there for a few years and then I moved back to Melbourne and I met a guy in Melbourne and we started going out and, you know, when you're hanging around, when you're using drugs, you meet people, other people using drugs and mm-hmm. it just so yep. happened he'd been using heroin for a few years. So now I had the contacts in Melbourne and over the next few years um, 
I was using more and more of this while still working full-time, thinking I had it under control. What happens when you start using hard drugs, though, is that it's not uncommon to see people overdose. And mm. it wasn't uncommon for me to be in a, a, a group of people using heroin. Now, you know, today it could be GHB or ketamine or ice or MDMA, which is ecstasy, one of these other drugs. Mm. And it wasn't yeah. uncommon to see someone suddenly turn blue and stop breathing. They'd overdosed on the drug that they were using. Yeah. And I would see, and it was frightening, but I'd see someone spot it and jump to their rescue quickly and give them mouth to mouth resuscitation. And like, because they resuscitated them fairly quickly, it didn't seem that serious. Mm. I never saw anyone using proper CPR, you know, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And I've got a story of something that happened to me. Yeah, tell us about that one time. Yeah. Um, one night, my partner and I went out to see a band play in St Kilda and we were drinking away and in this um, drunken state, he sneaked out to score heroin and didn't tell me and normally we did this together. Mm. And when we went home... Um, I was feeling really hungry and cooked up a bit of a storm because I hadn't eaten for quite a few hours and I was pretty hungry. And um, he said he was going to take a shower. So it took me about 20 minutes or so to cook the food. And by the time it was ready, I went to knock on the bathroom door to let him know that it was ready and there was no response. Mm -hmm. So I stuck my head in the in the bathroom to call out a bit louder and the, shower, the bathroom was completely filled with steam. So all he'd managed to do was turn on the hot tap and there was my partner slumped over an old disused heater and I realised straight away that when he'd said he was going to the toilet, he'd actually sneaked out and scored heroin. That's what mm. he told me he was going to the toilet. And this is a really dangerous mix. You see, yeah. alcohol on its own can kill, particularly spirits, um, and heroin or, or other drugs on their own can kill. But when you mix two drugs together, it can be so dangerous. Yeah. And I had to rate – I'd never actually – resuscitated anyone in my life and I raced into the bathroom I turned off the tap and then I had to get him onto his back and he's a lot heavier the bigger than me and yeah. his jaw he'd been unconscious for so long he was actually almost colorless and mm. and I had to fight really hard to even get his mouth open to give him mouth to mouth that was all I knew was mouth to mouth because I'd seen other people doing it yeah. and this is something you don't hear you know people talk about when they're using drugs and I gave him mouth to mouth for almost 40 minutes. Wow. Um, after about 15 or 20 minutes, I stood up and thought to myself, here I am in the middle of the night by myself with my dead boyfriend. You know, what do I do? I'll have to yeah. call an ambulance. There'll be police. How do I tell his mother? I, I just, he was gone. Yeah. And I just realised, oh, my gosh, he's gone. And in sheer terror, I got back down to my knees and just kept blowing over and over and over into his mouth. And finally, after another, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, so total nearly 40 minutes, a little <gasps> noise sort of came mm. out of his mouth and yeah. I gradually got him to breathe again. You know, so this is kind of a side to drugs that people don't talk about much. And, yeah. you know, we know people, we, we read about the overdoses and deaths, but, you know, the figures in uh, reported in Melbourne are, are something like 15,000 overdoses in Melbourne each year. But that mm. in, th those records are done on ambulance call-outs. When you resuscitate someone yourself, that's not recorded because yeah. there was no ambulance yeah. call-out. Mm -hmm. You had an experience yourself? Yeah, I overdosed myself about three times. One was one, two of them were fairly quickly um, recovered, but one of them was quite a serious overdose. And and um, yeah, I was got, I was unconscious for quite a while. And you know, and you make excuses. You think, oh, I was a bit overtired, and there was this, and there was that. You know, the reason we overdose is because we were using deadly drugs.
-hmm. You can use, you know, when you're using drugs, you, you justify things. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah, and you'd think that these overdoses would stop us from using, but, you know, we were addicted. We were, we were hooked and mm -hmm. you just never yeah. actually stop to think that you're going to die. You always think that I'll be all right, I'll, I'll survive this. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Karen Redpath, who's the author of the book, Out of the Darkness, about her story of coming out of the darkness of drug addiction. We'll hear more of Karen's story and how God begins to work in her life when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're back with more of Karen Redpath sharing her life journey and how God led her out of the darkness of drug addiction. Before the break, we heard how she gradually got deeper and deeper into using drugs and the drug lifestyle. Next, we'll hear how she finally reaches her lowest point and the miraculous thing that happened to her as she continues her chat with Eric Scadabo. So what happened to me over the next few years, I continued using drugs and working and thinking everything was okay. When I look back, it wasn't as okay as I thought. There was mm -hmm. fights over drugs. There were fights over money. We were robbed twice by friends, not close mm. friends, but oh, friends, friends, associates. Yes, because of drugs. The second uh, group of friends, there were three of them, were caught doing their 13th home burglary by a police helicopter and they admitted to our robbery as well. This is the drug scene. Huh. This is what really goes on. And, you know, I grew up in a loving, family my parents had no idea that I was going down this path mm. but after a few years I started to have problems my health problems I started to have all these weird symptoms and after going to a number of doctors it was discovered that I'd actually contracted hepatitis B now hep B is a really nasty illness but unbeknown to me or my doctors I also had some complications. Um, I know there's a hep B vaccination. Like any vaccinations, they're mm. not 100% foolproof. Uh, and there is a booster you have to have as well. But um, so I started having all these symptoms and I was given two months off work and I was no better than another two months and I was no better than another. So six months of being really ill. By this time, I was gravely ill. I could barely breathe when yeah. I did anything. Do, and do you know how my, you contracted it? Uh, yeah, it was through using needles. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's it's usually oh, a, trans a dirty needle transmission. Yep. So I'd i just used a needle from so after someone else mm -hmm. who had was carrying uh, hepatitis B. Yeah. Mm. And so I know who it was. I don't blame them. I actually passed it on to someone else. Mm. Um, they didn't suffer as badly as I did, but they're both very sick with it. So what happened to me? By this time, I was so ill that. My mum actually raced me into the Alfred Hospital and she made an appointment through my doctor with a specialist and I collapsed on the steps while she parked the car and they had to take me in with in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, I saw a professor who did a quick series of tests and at that point I was diagnosed with acute heart and kidney failure mm. and I was raced through the hospital corridors into the coronary care unit and I was only 25 years old. Wow. And I was in there with a lot of much older heart patients 
Now, the problem with me, um, at that point, I was given less than two hours to live. Not not two hours, less than. They expected me to die at any moment. Wow. My heart was so enlarged, it was beating three to 400 times a minute, and they called it a form of cardiomyopathy. And my kidney function was so poor, I had less than 5% function in both kidneys. And the, uh, my family, now, I wasn't told all of, all of the details. My mum asked the doctors to withhold the, the fact that they thought I would die because they thought that not knowing might give me the strength to keep fighting. Mm. <laughs> uh, honestly, I had no strength to fight at all. I could barely mm. breathe. I was dying. My, uh, when your heart and kidneys shut down, your lungs fill up with fluid. My whole body was filling up with fluid, and I could barely breathe. It was horrendous. Yeah, so what they said was that I needed a heart transplant, but to find a, a matching heart within two hours or under two hours would be impossible. Oh, yeah. And yeah. on top of that, they said my kidney function was so poor, they would not withstand the surgery. So that I was given a, a death sentence that day, but I'm still here. So there's <laughs> yes, another side yes. to that story. So what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just so happened that my older brother had um, been a Christian. His name's David. He'd been mm -hmm. a Christian for about, three and a half years, and he used to tell me about this Jesus bloke, and I used to, yeah, yeah, nah, <laughs> I don't yeah. need that. You know, look what I'm doing. I'm having fun. I'm living the life. Well, now I needed it. And mm. he called on his pastor and many others, and I found out some years later that a few hundred people prayed for me that night, and wow. amazingly I survived, but I yeah. still wasn't out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And over the next week my doctors were, you know, pumping me. They were brilliant. I was under brilliant specialists, pumping me with all sorts of medications. But they still expected me to die. And on my seventh day in hospital, they were like really surprised and scratching their heads. I should be dead by now. And they sent me off for another scan of my heart. And the following day, the results came through. And, and I had three specialists come and see me. And they said, this is amazing. This is not the same heart. It's like you have a new heart. And wow. miraculously, my heart had restored to almost normal. And, you know, I believe now <laughs> yeah. that those prayers had been heard, you know. Um, God gave me another chance, which is just amazing because, you know, I'd rejected Jesus. Mm -hmm. So my yeah. future wasn't going to be with him. So this is pretty frightening and pretty full on. But it's interesting. They said it's like you have a new heart. Yep. Yep, and I believe that's what God gave me, mm -hmm. which is just incredible. So, But my kidney function was still really poor. Mm -hmm. And I was then wheeled out on a stretcher again, full of flowers and everything that people had sent, uh, into a general ward. And I spent almost five months in that ward, and I oh, actually wow. nearly died again. Um, I was the first person in Australia ever to receive an experimental drug called interferon, and it was mm -hmm. flown in from Finland from me because what had happened to me was that for some unknown reason, well, we have a bit of a clue now. My antibodies, um, when I contracted hepatitis B through sharing a needle, mm -hmm. through using heroin, my antibodies actually malfunctioned and attacked my body, my heart, my kidneys, my arterial system. And the condition was called polyarteritis nodosa, mm -hmm. um, rather than attacking the disease. And the idea of the interferon was to was to get rid of the disease so that my body would, um, you know, no longer keep attacking itself. What we have discovered now, I'll just add in here, that smoking marijuana can actually uh, affect your autoimmune system. And mm. I'd smoked a lot of marijuana. So it's quite likely that that's why, uh, that's the reason I had the malfunction of my autoimmune system when I contracted hepatitis B. So what happened with this drug? It was so experimental 
it actually made me throw up my medication. Mm-hmm. And I was on massive doses of, of all sorts of anti-inflammatories, blood pressure medication, medication for my kidneys. I was still on a little bit of heart medication, all sorts of things. And I, uh, my blood pressure just skyrocketed. It went through the roof and it caused me to have massive grand mal seizures or, or convulsions. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. fell out of bed. I ripped out drips. My heart actually stopped. I had to be resuscitated. And once again, so I died. I didn't see anything, but I died and was resuscitated. And I ended up in a coma for three days. And once again, they expected me not to survive. But amazingly, the prayers continued. And after three days, I I woke up again. It it was horrendous. This was when I think back to this time, I spent almost five months in hospital. You know, and as I said, this all began with me thinking this was going to be a bit of fun. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, and, and yeah, when I look back, it wasn't fun. Like I said, I I had fights and, you know, it, it was horrendous. I just cannot believe how reckless I was and how, you know, I just didn't look to the future at all, which is a really important part of my story as well, yeah. Well, that was part one of Eric Scatterbo's conversation with Karen Redpath, who's the author of the book, Out of the Darkness, about her story of coming out of the darkness of drug addiction. We invite you to join us again next time to hear more of Karen's story and how the Lord completely changes her life around to the point that she's now educating young people so they don't go down the same destructive path that she went down. That's all coming up next time. Karen says that a good verse that really sums up what has happened in her life is Psalm 118, verse 17, which says, I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And that's exactly what is happening in Karen's life as she continues to share with everyone what the Lord has done for her. To find out more about Karen and her book, you can go to her website, karenredpath.com.au. That's Karen, spelt K-E-R-R-Y-N, redpath.com.au Well, next time we'll hear more of Karen's story and until then, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. My heart was restored miraculously, eventually to just normal, but my kidney function stayed just outside of normal. So I was left with a thorn in my side. There's consequences for the choices we make. And these days I've actually been doing 10 years of drug and alcohol awareness education, and it's not missed by the students. The fact that I've been left with consequences Karen Redpath joins us once again to share more of her story of coming out of the darkness of drug addiction. After reaching a low point where she nearly died, she finally reached out to God and surrendered her life to Him. We'll find out the impact this has had on her life next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.